When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. In a way, it's maybe strange that the Western is such a prominent genre. Seemingly, it's connected to a very specific time and place, the mid to late 19th century American West. Why are we all so familiar with the many tropes of the Western? Cowboys and Indians, shootouts and saloons, cattle rustlers and sheriffs, tumbleweed and canyons. Why are we constantly reinventing, reshaping and reimagining this one particular time and place? It's not as if there's an entire popular culture industry around, I don't know, the west of Ireland in the 18th century or early 20th century Russia. But the Western has a particular hold on the popular imagination partly for reasons of historical and cultural influence, but ultimately because of its supreme adaptability, its capacity to mingle and merge with other genres. In many ways, the least important element in labelling something a Western is a setting in the American West. The weird Western is a term given to works that blend classic Western tropes with other aspects of speculative literature, so generally science fiction, horror, and fantasy. It's a hybrid genre, and there are plenty of hybrids. Space Westerns, steampunk Westerns, supernatural and horror Westerns, time travel Westerns, Westerns drawing on Afrofuturism and indigenous futurism, and many, many more. There's also, obviously, a long tradition of what we can call classic westerns. So, westerns without zombies or aliens or other interventions. And it's a genre that plenty of writers and filmmakers and others return to again and again. But it's the weird westerns, the hybrid westerns, that I want to look at in this episode because this is where the western is at its most creative, most groundbreaking and most fascinating today. The demise of the Western is regularly heralded, and yet, much like the undead creatures of the many horror Westerns out there, it steadfastly refuses to die. It keeps reinventing itself decade after decade. So when I came across an edited collection of essays on this very topic, Weird Westerns, Race, Gender, Genre, I figured I'd better chat to one of the co-editors. I'm Dr. Sarah Spurgeon. I teach literatures of the American West at Texas Tech University. And as Dr. Spurgeon explains, the weird Western is a pretty broad category. We define weird Westerns as a hybrid genre that crosses itself with sci-fi, with fantasy, with horror. Westerns do tend to lend themselves well to... Anything action-adventure-oriented, anything uh, haunted, as it involves a fairly haunting history of colonialism and violence. In fact, all types of speculative fiction tend 
to eventually have a fling with the Western. For example, superheroes, right? One of Marvel Comics' most popular superhero characters is Ghost Rider, a kind of modern Western outlaw who's gotten superpowers after he sold his soul to the devil. And now he has to ride forever on his Harley Davidson motorcycle instead of a horse. He was uh, famously played by Nicolas Cage in the 2007 film. So really, Westerns are an impure genre from the very beginning, which means that it's a genre that welcomes the kinds of crossings that get called weird. To get to the heart of the weird Western, though, you have to look at the history of the genre. And the thing to understand is that the Western has kind of always been weird. way of getting a pretty good overview of the history is to look at it from the point of view of the other genres it gets crossed with. So first, there's fantasy. And the Western is fantastical in many ways. The West, in inverted commas, was always a fantasy location, a land of white male wish fulfillment. As a geographical space, it was largely invented by rich Eastern urbanites, the likes of Theodore Roosevelt or Owen Wister, Frederick Remington and several others. These are men who visited the West, often for therapeutic reasons, to cure their nervousness. And you can go all the way back to episode six for a whole episode on that very topic. And they then created a fictional world of noble cowboys escaping the constraints of urbanism and domesticity, a violent male world of rugged individualism and wild landscapes. Novels like Owen Wister's hugely influential 1902 classic The Virginian helped shape these ideas in the public consciousness. It introduced lots of cowboy tropes into the genre, including the shootout ending, and helped create a fantasy West that would become the basis for the Western genre. So it's little wonder that the Western blends so easily with fantasy, given its origins in a fantasy romanticized version of the West. I should say as well that lots of these themes were carried across from much earlier work, not actually set in the American West at all. James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales. The most famous of these is The Last of the Mohicans. You've maybe read the book or probably seen the film. It's often considered the first Western novel. And that's published in 1826, so 50 years earlier, but also a thousand miles to the east of where we think of Westerns being set today. Uh, in other words, in New England, where the Indian Wars there have already finished. But other than the setting in the, the dense forests of New England instead of the wide open spaces of the American West, Cooper's novel really gives us all the themes that will be taken up by the so-called dime novel Westerns of the 1880s and 1890s. So a beautiful but dangerous wilderness, uh, Indians as noble savages, Indians as savage savages, captive white women who need to be rescued by brave white men with very large guns, uh, and then eventually outlaws, horse thieves, cattle wrestlers who are opposed by a courageous white sheriff.
And then the third major work to have a huge influence on the genre is Zane Grey's greatest novel, Riders of the Purple Sage, from 1912. So Grey was a phenomenally successful writer. He earned millions from his dozens and dozens of Western novels. Riders of the Purple Sage is, is actually quite different from The Virginian. This is like a tale of love and revenge set around Mormon frontier life. But it also established so many of the classic elements of the genre. There's cattle rustling and the black-clad gunslinging cowboy. There are thrilling chases on horseback, which are great, actually. Grey Gray writes a good horse chase scene and lots of other familiar tropes. Like The Virginian, it has spawned numerous stage plays, Hollywood films, TV series, and other adaptations in the century or so since its publication. So the Western is full of fantasy, but it's also closely aligned with science fiction, very closely aligned. Do you remember that Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford film, Cowboys and Aliens, from a while back? Aliens land in Arizona in 1873, sci-fi explosions and Western gunfights ensue. Well, it's not a strange blend at all, really. Cowboys have been fighting aliens since the very beginnings of both science fiction and the Western. It's not a coincidence that both genres emerged in the late 19th century at the height of colonial expansion in Europe and the US. Both genres are obsessively concerned with violence and colonialism and racially othered people. Cowboys and Indians, cowboys and aliens. Edgar Rice Burroughs, a writer who's made a few appearances on this show, would you believe, explicitly wrote a Western sci-fi novel. His hero, John Carter, begins in a Western novel in Arizona and then very quickly ends up on a suspiciously Western-like Mars. And so much science fiction is like this. Star Wars, for example, is a Western in so many ways. Right? It's got savage aliens as Indians. It has a pioneer family. It's got a dusty frontier town, a gunslinging hero, even a classic saloon scene, right? Uh, And the current Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, is also uh, openly positioning itself as a Western. Many folks may be aware that Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry famously pitched his series to NBC executives as Wagon Train to the Stars, nodding to the enormously popular 1950s TV series Wagon Train. So, you know, how is it that we recognize these examples as Westerns when literally none of them are even set on planet Earth, let alone the 19th century West? It's because each of them takes the thrills, the images, the themes of the classic Western, again, a wild and dangerous frontier to be explored, right? What does the opening of Star Trek tell us? Space, the final frontier. Uh, There's a racially othered enemy to be conquered. There is an opportunity for justified violence, typically carried out by a white male hero who is in a battle not just for himself, but for his people, his race, his civilization, It just simply moves to another planet, right? And then there were other things going on too at the end of the 19th century when science fiction and the Western were emerging. It's also the burgeoning women's suffrage movement. So it's not an accident that that early movement begins at exactly the same time as the Western, right? A genre in which all the heroes are male, they get to solve every problem by shooting someone, and the main Domestic spaces they inhabit are saloons, gambling halls, and brothels, right? The the gender anxieties aren't even subtle here. (laughs) 
But neither are the racial anxieties, right? So if you look at what's going on in the U.S. during the second half of the 19th century, the Civil War has just ended. Newly freed African-Americans are beginning to demand equal rights, just as women are beginning to demand equal rights. In fact, many of the early women suffrage activists had, before the Civil War, been abolitionists. So in the U.S., of course, miscegenation, that is mixed-race marriages, were still illegal in most U.S. states uh, at this time. In fact, they would remain illegal in the U.S. until 1967. But out West, there were large populations of Native people and Mexicans. And just as in colonial times, there was in the Old West an awful lot of racial mixing going on. And let me pull us forward just a bit here. It's no coincidence that the Western begins in that violent and tumultuous time, but that it then has its golden age in the 1950s, which is, of course, the height of the Cold War. Uh, The U.S. is in the 1950s being racked by the civil rights movement. Uh, The supremacy of white American men is under direct assault um, domestically and from abroad. So You know, what better place to imagine yourself than in a fantasy version of the Old West where men were men and women were helpless captives. And in the words of General Sheridan, who was the commander of chief in the U.S. Army in the 1980s, the the only good Indian was a dead Indian. And so after fantasy and science fiction, we have horror. The Western, I mentioned at the beginning, is a genre that keeps coming back from the dead, that keeps patching itself together from bits of other genres that can change shape and reappear in other forms. It is, in other words, horrific and supernatural. It can also, like the horror genre, provoke and reflect our fears about the world around us. It's a genre in its original form that's not only full of violence and conquest, but of fears and anxieties on the part of its authors. About racial purity, about frontiers and borders, about identity and nationality, about sexuality, urbanization, masculinity, mental and physical health. Those worries that sort of haunt the Western are still things that in the U.S. trouble us today, which is why the Western keeps being reimagined by each new generation that needs to think through these issues. So I'm going to take a quick break because the show has a sponsor this week in the form of another podcast, 180 Degrees. So this is a show all about sustainability and green energy from the SEAI, the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. So basically answers all those kind of sustainability questions you might have, like how do you reduce your carbon emissions at home or at work? Like what are the benefits of driving an electric car? How does energy research influence the government and their policies? And they answer all of these questions by sharing stories of people across Ireland who are working towards a cleaner energy future. Season two has just launched, so go check it out. And there's a whole back catalogue from the first season as well. It's called 180 Degrees. You can get it wherever you listen to this podcast now. And it's brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. 
Now, this would also be the time when I might play you a trailer from another Headstuff Podcast Network show. But actually, this week, all of the other shows are playing my trailer. So that's kind of nice. So instead, I'll just say, hey, go pick a show on the Headstuff Podcast Network and have a listen. There are lots of them. There's nearly 30 shows, so they're across a whole range of topics. So there's definitely something else out there I think you might like. So have a look. Just head to headstuff.org and find a new show. And finally, if you want to support this show and get lots of fun bonus content, including the words that affect crossover comedy improv episode I did with the podcast Phoning It In, then head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash WTTE and find out more. So back to the show. So the Western has always been a hybrid form in so many ways, but in the 21st century, some really exciting and original developments have emerged. Initially, from around the 1960s, this took the form of more sympathetic portrayals of Native American culture. Right, so the director John Ford makes the film Cheyenne Autumn in 1964 that portrays the Cheyenne Nation sympathetically, although also quite patronizingly. Um, In 1964 also, the author Thomas Berger publishes Little Big Man, which will be made into a hugely popular film in 1970, starring Dustin Hoffman as a white man who goes to live with the Indians. Uh, In 1990, Kevin Costner will adapt Michael Blake's novel, Dances with Wolves, into a, a, a genuinely sensitive and sympathetic portrayal of the Lakota in the 1860s, Um, which also features a white man who goes to live with the Indians. Uh, And then in 2009, we have James Cameron's blockbuster Avatar about, (laughs) you might guess, a white man who goes to live with the Indians, who this time are sexy blue-skinned natives in this weird Western alien film. All of those you may have noticed, involve white male writers, white male directors, and a white male hero through whom the story is told. More recently, there have been some refreshingly different perspectives from authors who are not white men. So African-American novelist Percival Everett in 1994 wrote a Western novel called God's Country, It's absolutely brilliant, it's laugh-out-loud funny, and it's also a devastating satire of the classic Western. Um, The young Native American and African-American author Rebecca Roanhorse, who has already won both a Hugo and a Nebula Award, these are literary awards given in the genres of science fiction and fantasy, published a weird Western novel in 2018 called Trail of Lightning. I really enjoyed this novel. It's got lots of Western tropes, so it's set in a post-apocalyptic West, one which has been brought about by climate change. And there are saloons and shootouts and cowboys and gamblers, and the main character is a bounty hunter. Except she's a Navajo monster hunter with special powers who's paid to slay monsters from Navajo mythology because this apocalypse has also resulted in the presence of Navajo gods and mythological beings. It's a little bit like Neil Gaiman's American Gods, but with lots of post-apocalyptic sci-fi and Western and horror and fantasy. It's, it's my kind of book. It's great. It's fascinating, really inventive. And there is a follow-up, which I haven't read yet, so I need to get on that. Yes, that, that novel is enormous fun. It's gotten very good reviews, 
And Roan Horse has now been asked by the Star Wars franchise to author a series of novels for them. Uh, if you're looking for something uh, even more literary, there is Chinese-American writer Pam Zhang's 2020 novel, How Much of These Hills is Gold. Now, this was long listed for the Booker Prize, uh, and it in some ways looks like a classic Western. It's set in the mining camps of California during the gold rush, uh, but it also features magical creatures from Chinese mythology that roam the hills along with the two Chinese-American children, a brother and sister, who are the novel's main characters. So there's plenty out there alongside other more mainstream weird westerns. Perhaps most prominently, HBO's Westworld, another sci-fi reimagining of the West, as well as all the other Western TV shows and films that are regularly released. Steven Soderbergh's Netflix series, Godless, about a New Mexico mining town inhabited almost entirely by women. You have the Coen Brothers' Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, and plenty of others. The Western, weird or otherwise, is a genre that was born out of huge societal change, global change, not just in the US, around empires and colonization, questions of race and gender and identity. And these are not exactly issues that have gone away. They're more vital to address than ever. And so the Western has been reimagined and reformed, taken on new perspectives and merged with genres and subgenres. To have one genre that sort of folds all that... <laughs> together and lets you have cool gunplay and horse chases. <laughs> What's not to love? Exactly. So that's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. A huge thanks to my guest this week, Professor Sarah Spurgeon. I'll put links to her, her work, and of course her collection on Weird Westerns, which is out, just out. And I'll put all of this on the Words to That Effect website, which is at wttepodcast.com. You can find lots of other things there, like transcripts and pictures and links, and of course all of the previous back catalogue of episodes. You can also follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Words to That Effect or follow me on Twitter at CEDREAD, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Come say hi and please spread the word. Tell your friends about the show, post about it on social media, whatever you like. It all helps and I really, really appreciate it. And if you want to do one better, then head on over to patreon.com slash WTTE and check out what's on offer there. I've also realised that I'm coming dangerously close to episode 50, so I'm not entirely sure what I should do to mark the occasion, so if you have any ideas, let me know. But for now, that's it. I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.